This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 4th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, how changing biomedical funding is changing lives. And David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. In the U.S., biomedical research funding has had its ups and downs. The largest funder in the U.S., and actually the whole world, the NIH, works on an annual budget. On top of that, there are large swings in the kind of money NIH has to allocate. The late 90s and early 2000s brought the doubling. This is when NIH's budget zoomed from $14 billion to $27 billion. After a period of flatness, the NIH received another boost, this time of $10 billion in 2009. And more recently, its budget took a big hit, 5% cuts across the board during last year's sequester. Where does this leave researchers and the scientific enterprise, which tend to operate on a much different timescale, be it building a graduate program, a new research facility, or a 40-year career? I spoke with Jennifer Cousin Frankel about a special financial package in this week's news section that includes some on-the-ground reports from the changing world of those who depend on this type of funding. Now, we've certainly written about this. A lot of people have written about these stresses that researchers are facing. We kind of wanted to go beyond that in this package and say, look, this is the world that people are living in now. How is everyone adapting to it? What changes are they making to their research, to their labs, to their science, to how they think about their careers? So we were really looking at adaptation. One thing you point out in the opening story is that there are a lot of unknowns these days, unanswered questions like... How are young scientists doing? What are these financial changes done to establish labs versus newer ones? Is is anyone looking into this at a systematic level? Yeah, so when we started this, you know, the big question is, well, we have these budget numbers. We have these numbers of, you know, success rates on research proposals. And so 30% of grants 
applications used to be funded for individual research projects. Now it's around 17%, and that's been a really big adjustment for the community. How are people adapting? What are people actually doing on a big scale? And we quickly discovered that that information is very hard to come by, and partly because it's happening in real time right now. So most of the data that people have collected you know, might be several years old, and we were interested in the now. So that is very difficult to get. And like you say, there are tons of uncertainties about you know, who exactly is being impacted. Are there certain sub-areas of science that are being impacted? There are a lot of rumors out there, and right. it can be difficult to get the real information. Now, there are people who are trying to look at that. I talked to a number of economists who are studying this and who think about the workforce and funding and how different patterns of funding and even different sources of funding, like funding from nonprofits or industry versus government funding, might change the nature of labs. There are people who are studying lab size, you know, is the size of labs mm-hmm. changing? So people are looking at these adjustments. But in this package, we have more of a survey of some of the firsthand experiences. What are some of the things those in, say, younger labs are going through with respect to getting the funding they need? Right. So we decided, you know, because it was hard to really get this big picture data, we really wanted to tell the stories of individual scientists. And of course, we can't say that these stories are generalizable across different categories. But we set out to profile a half dozen or so people who were different ages at different stages of their careers facing different choices and came up with some really interesting stories and some really interesting patterns across these profiles as well. So we did profile one scientist who's in her early 40s, which by NIH standards is still considered pretty young. They're still considered early career investigators if they have not gotten their first big research grant. And that's the position that this scientist was in. She's a neurologist and a Parkinson's disease researcher. She was trying to get a grant to study Parkinson's disease and to really establish her own lab and was really struggling to do that. And in a sense, she was interesting to us because she's a physician scientist. She's an MD-PhD, and she's very much the kind of person that NIH politicians and others say we need in research right now. And yet she was just having a very difficult time securing her first big grant to get herself set up. And then I think you looked at someone else nearby in Baltimore? Yes. So then if you kind of think about the career trajectory, we looked at a biologist at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She had gotten that first big grant. That big grant is expiring, and she's now trying to figure out what to do next. And one thing that was actually striking about these two profiles, purely by coincidence, is that the first one who we referred to as the vulnerable scientist, the one who's still starting out, in a sense, the timing was not on her side. She applied for her grant right around the time of the sequester when there was you know, a chop in the NIH budget. And so she was getting scores on her grant applications that you know, might a year earlier have gotten her funding, but her timing was just not good timing, so she wasn't getting her grant funded. Whereas this other scientist applied for her first grant a few years earlier, her first big grant, when there was this $10 billion infusion into NIH from the stimulus package. So she was kind of a beneficiary of that luckier timing, but now she's having to figure out ways to adapt to a much smaller lab budget because she struggled to figure out what to do. She has not yet tried to renew this big grant, which is called an R01. It's a big individual research grant. And one of her challenges, which we heard from many, many scientists, you know, at all different stages of their careers, is that she spent so much time applying for grants that she doesn't have time to do the actual science. So you get stuck in this vicious circle 
where you need to show the evaluators, the peer reviewers, that you have some science to build on, and yet you don't have time to do that science because you keep applying for grants. And what about some of these more seasoned labs that you took a look at? What, what was going on there? Well, those were interesting. So we looked in particular at two more seasoned researchers. Now, one of them was a researcher who's doing exceptionally well, and he has millions of dollars in grant funding. He studies type 2 diabetes in African-American populations primarily. He was really doing well, and we were interested in looking at him and saying, well, why is he doing so well? What is it about him that you know has him so well-funded? And there wasn't really an easy answer to that question. I think like some of the others, the timing in certain respects was on his side in terms of when he got certain grants and when he was able to start establishing himself. Another thing we noticed, and this was a thread that came out in some of the other profiles as well, is that he has put a really high um, priority on collaborating with other scientists because it sort of helps protect him to some degree. So it kind of hedges against risk if he, for example, isn't doing as well, he can kind of lean on a collaborator. And we saw that too in some others who were maybe thinking more about collaboration as a way to protect themselves. And that's something that he has done. Now, another seasoned scientist we profiled is in a very different position. He does very basic biochemical research. He has been funded for years and years and years by NIH and learned relatively recently that his NIH grants were not being renewed. So he was kind of cut off by NIH, and they said, you know, we funded you for all this time, but we don't think this rises to the level now where we want to continue supporting you. He was looking for and did ultimately find some alternate funding. Right. And you also actually covered someone who's on the administrative side and how they're dealing with the big changes in these numbers. Yeah, that was interesting to us. We looked at an administrator, a vice president for research at a big research university, Northwestern University in Chicago. And we picked him because we saw something of an interesting disconnect between the big picture at Northwestern, which if you just look at their bottom line numbers, is doing quite well. They're bringing in a lot of research dollars, and what they're bringing in has gone up, and they've gone up quite a bit more than the overall NIH budget has gone up. So they're kind of doing disproportionately well, one might say. They're doing well on their bottom line, and that's what he focuses on, certainly, is he cares about the bottom line and how are they doing. But then there's also the kind of individual lab picture at Northwestern where even the scientists who are doing well and are getting their grants are still stressed out and struggling and finding it difficult. And so we were interested in that, too, to highlight You know, on the one hand, it's not as though everyone is doing poorly. Maybe it's important to think about the big picture here, too, but it's also interesting to contrast it with the little picture. There's a lot of stories in this package. Is there anything that particularly stuck out to you? I think what really stuck out for me was in the profile of the biologist at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and how she is being forced to adapt in ways that certainly might make it more difficult for her to do the science she wants to do, but the adaptations were quite striking to me. So she's collaborating. She's looking for ways to afford essentially cheap or even unpaid labor, like undergraduates, bringing back someone who was in a PhD and was a star student and dropped out and is staying at home with her three kids. She asked that person to come in and help train others in her lab. She's thinking about all different ways to apply for grants. Just the way that people are trying to think about how to handle the environment they're in. And they may wish that it's not the environment they're in, but they're also trying to look at it realistically. Jennifer, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for Science. She writes about the ups and downs of scientific funding in this week's issue. 
Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the iron lungs of planet Earth. Researchers have long thought that iron played an important role in the comings and goings of the planet's ice ages. But up until now, the data hasn't been very strong in support of this idea. So Dave, let's start with the basics here. What does iron have to do with ice? Well, what's interesting about iron is that it nourishes organisms that live in the sea, specifically organisms that photosynthesize. So they're sucking carbon dioxide from the air. And what's significant about that is carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. So the more you suck from the air, the more you sequester in the sea, theoretically, the cooler the planet gets. And some people have proposed that iron-rich dust floating on the air thousands, tens of thousands of years ago seeded seas and caused perhaps one or more ice ages because so much of the greenhouse gas was removed from the air, the earth really cooled a lot. Okay, so where does all this iron dust actually come from? Well, one idea is that when sea levels are low and you have these broad areas of coastal shallows that are now not submerged anymore, it exposes the sediments that are rich in iron. And as the sediments dry out, the iron gets picked up by the wind and wafts into the sea where it can feed these organisms that suck CO2 from the air. So this new study brings in a new method using sediment cores to study this. What did they look for in these drill sites? They took these core samples from several sites, and they looked at organic material that was bound to the carbonate skeletons of a particular species of sea microorganism called foraminifera. These are very tiny organisms, but they're incredibly important for ocean ecosystems. And typically, the more biologically productive an ecosystem, the more of these guys you have around. And you can actually look at the amount of nitrate dissolved by these forums to get a sense for how many of them were around, how productive this ecosystem was, and then potentially how much carbon dioxide was being sucked from the air. There's kind of a connection here between iron dropping out of the ocean, the increase in these populations, more nitrogen being used up, and more CO2 being pulled out of the air. Right. And what the researchers found was that they saw these relationships during the last two ice ages where you did seem to have this boost in foraminifera activity that seemed to precede the ice age, which would suggest that these organisms were being fed by iron. They were becoming very productive. They were sucking a lot of carbon dioxide out of the air. And this may have helped bring on these ice ages. And so how much of the carbon dioxide variation that we see, you know, with these ice ages can actually be explained by the iron dust? Well, it's probably not the entire explanation. There's likely other factors at work. One interesting implication of the study is that so-called geoengineering efforts. These are efforts by humans to cool the planet. One idea has actually been to seed the sea with iron so that you would have this process occurring and cooling the planet if it got too hot. But it's still a little unclear about how this process works and what any potential side effects of the process are as well. Next up, we have a story on defining the dingo. Are dingoes a species of their own, unique to Australia, or more like a cousin of domestic dogs and wolves, all descended from a common ancestor? This is actually a longstanding debate. Dave, can you take us back to the beginning? When did the dingo first show up in Australia? Well, archaeological evidence suggests the animal arrived on the continent at least 3,500 years ago and that it came from Asia and that the animal there 
may have evolved from the wolf. And early naturalists believed that the dingo represented a new species of canine. They even gave it its own designation, Canis dingo. But over the past few hundred years, scientists have really argued about whether the dingo really deserves this classification, whether it actually is its own species, whether it's a subspecies of wolf, whether it's really just a kind of dog. There's been a lot of inbreeding with dogs on the continent of Australia, which has caused a lot of confusion about the exact nature of these animals. They do look different. You can see a picture of one on the site. They Their coloring is a bit strange. They howl in kind of a strange way that you don't see with dogs. And there's some other features which indicates that it's an animal that really isn't like the dog and isn't really like the wolf and maybe does deserve to be called its own species. But for science, you have to be a little bit more specific than that. You can't just sort of look at an animal and say, yeah, it looks kind of different. It deserves to be its own species. Yeah, and naming species has actually gotten harder and harder the more we find out about genetics. That's right. So the question here is actually how to classify these animals. Why is it an important question for the dingo? Well, the dingo is sort of both a loved and a hated animal in Australia. Conservationists believe it should be protected because they think it plays an important role in Australia's ecosystem by eating feral cats and foxes. But ranchers consider dingoes pests because they kill valuable livestock. So if conservationists really want to save the dingo, they've got to make the case that this is a unique species that deserves to be protected. So I gather the genetic evidence is a little hazy here. So the researchers on this paper, they wanted to get a better sample? That's right. And they went to some museums that had dingo specimens that preceded the arrival of dogs from Europe. And that's significant because the researchers really want to figure out what did this original animal look like? Was it a unique species. They looked at a lot of the traits of the animal. They discovered that these older dingoes had a range of coat colors, yellow, brown, ginger, red, things that you don't see in modern dogs, but you do see in some modern dingoes suggesting those dingoes did not mate with dogs and they are unique. They also saw some things like particular shapes of the dingo skull and the architecture of their hind legs, traits that are not seen in dogs or wolves. And so they were basically able to show that they have a lot of distinct characteristics that have only been diluted by the modern dogs, but that are not due to interbreeding with modern dogs. That's right. So where does this actually leave the debate? Do we now have a definition of a dingo? (laughs) Well, these researchers say that based on everything that they see, that the dingo does indeed deserve to be called its own species. They're recommending that it be re-reclassified as Canis dingo. It was for a while called Canis lupus dingo, which would have indicated it was a subspecies of wolf. They're really saying that this really is its own animal. But not everybody's on board. There are experts who say that this methodology in the study wasn't rigorous enough, that a lot more needs to be done to really prove that the dingo is indeed its own species. Finally, we have a story on Neanderthal's contribution to the European physique. Neanderthals went extinct about 30,000 years ago, but not before interbreeding with nearby humans. And according to comparisons of Neanderthal genome sequences with those of modern humans, the legacy of that interbreeding is complex. So, Dave, what did Europeans and Asians inherit from our extinct cousins? Well, Sarah, we know that Europeans and Asians got about 1% to 4% of their genes from Neanderthals. And that's something Africans don't share. And that's because this interbreeding that took place between Neanderthals and modern humans took place in the Middle East. And that's after the groups that would become today's Asians and Europeans migrated out of Africa. So today's Africans don't share 
any Neanderthal DNA. So we know Europeans and Asians got some things from Neanderthals, and there's been studies suggesting that genes involved in diseases like Crohn's disease, some immune functions, even some aspects of our skin, nails, and hair may have come from Neanderthals. And this study is focusing on some other genes that haven't been looked at before? Right. These are genes involved in fat metabolism. And what's interesting is when the researchers compared the genome of Neanderthals to today's Europeans and Asians, what they found was that Neanderthals and Europeans had a lot more genes involved in fat metabolism than Asians did. So there's a commonality there in how these different bodies handle fat that isn't shared with people from Asian countries. What do we know about the specifics of these genes uh, shared between Neanderthals and Europeans? What are their functions? Any relationship with disease? Well, we don't know much about the function of the genes, but we know that some of them are involved in the concentration of fatty acids in the brain and also elsewhere in the body. And so the researchers actually went to some brain banks. They look at the concentrations of fats in the brains of Europeans and Asians, and they found some pretty significant differences. And they tied this all together to suggest that Europeans inherited some genes that caused Europeans to have potentially more types of fats in their brains and also in their bodies than Asians did. And they actually speculate that this might actually be useful for Europeans because of the climate they were coming into. Right. Both Neanderthals and Europeans were living in very cold regions of northern Europe. And so they really needed these fats potentially to keep themselves warm, to have an extra source of energy that the ancestors of today's Asians may not have needed. And what's really cool about this is it sort of suggests that Europeans took this evolutionary shortcut, that instead of taking tens of thousands of years to evolve adaptations to the cold climate they were in, they sort of stole these genes from Neanderthals by mating with them. And so they were able to shortcut tens of thousands of years of evolution and just acquire the genes that they needed to survive this climate. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new generation of wearable electronics. Also a story about what makes some sperm swim faster than others. For Science Insider, our policy blog, a new report that suggests a large drop in basic research and what might be behind it. Also, we are following a misconduct case that's swirling around a couple of scientific papers that purported to show a new way to reprogram stem cells. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>